Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, flow, freedom, agorism, anarchy, and more. Our mission is to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. I'm your host, Mike the Polymath Whistler, coming from the Easy Peasy Shop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. Welcome to episode 67 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. You know, I'm getting I'm getting a little bit stoned over here. I hope you don't mind. But I had a I had a productive day. You know, it was even rainy. It was a rainy day and I still got shit done. You know, this week, it's a big week. I'm, I'm building a garden, greenhouse, and I'm planting some 20, 25 gardens. I should say over the next 10 days. I'm also going to a friend's wedding this weekend. Looking forward to it. <sighs> but... No rest for the weary. It's, you know, it's go time. It's make or break. It's fucking nut up or shut up. And I'm not complaining. I'm loving it. I'm fired up. I'm enjoying it. You know, I I don't know how many folks out there could do what I do. You know, it's one thing to plan and install a landscape. It's another thing to maintain that landscape. But to specifically build vegetable gardens. Not that not that there aren't many people who could, but there just aren't that many who do. It's a niche that is widely under represented I assume there's guys like me out there but I really haven't heard of that many and I, I there's a word that I'm about to bring up and I don't mean to sound cocky as I say it but in the true definition of it you know there's there's maybe other words I could choose but exceptional 
What does that mean? It means you are not the norm. You are the exception. You are the outlier. And I strive to be exceptional. I strive to be different. I strive to offer something no one else does. Both with my gardening and with this podcast. You know, I don't know if it's apparent or not, but... I'm trying to sort of find my voice still. And I hesitate at times. And I don't like it when I hesitate. I, you know, sometimes I record and I go back and I I just don't like the way I sound cuz I'm hesitating. Because I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say yet. But I'm starting to get into the groove. I'm starting to know what it is I need to say. And I think the theme of this episode is essentially that there are exceptional people. Which would imply the inverse that there are vastly more unexceptional people. And I don't say that to be dickish. I'm just saying it to be honest. A lot of people live lives of quiet desperation. That's what Henry David Thoreau said. And I'm done being quietly desperate. You know, I get I get fired up by new and exciting and challenging things. I like people who have something to say. I like people with stories, with jokes, who don't hesitate in their delivery. I like authenticity. And I think we beat around the bush, you know, right now we're, we're being bombarded with this idea of equity that all people are the same. No, all people are equal in, you know, the, in the law and under the eyes of God. But equity All people deserve the same. All people are the same. It's it's horseshit. There are clearly exceptional people. And the typical easy example would be professional athletes. But I try to go a little deeper than that on this show. Partly because I'm just simply not that interested in professional sports. But I think an exceptional person of note who maybe doesn't get recognized as widely as his son is Kurt Vonnegut Sr. Now, you hopefully know the name Kurt Vonnegut wrote some exceptional 
literature. Slaughterhouse Five is the, <clears throat> you know, most widely known, but he's he's written a lot of really, really interesting novels and short stories, and he's a bit of a local hero in Indianapolis. But his father, his father, Kurt Vonnegut Sr., was an architect. And in 1929, you know, I just did some research this morning because, well, before I get ahead of myself, I'll tell you, I, I saw something online. This, this gif of a, of a building being rotated 90 degrees. Old photographs, but a series of snapshots from one particular angle giving a time-lapse effect of this building being rotated. You know, a tall, you know, eight-story building. Turns out that was the Indiana Bell telephone company building and the whole thing was being moved because of Kurt Vonnegut Sr.'s suggestion basically this this telephone company changed hands it was purchased and they wanted to expand because you know 1930 the use of telephones was going up was increasing and you had to have these operators, these switchboards, these hubs, right? And this building was a hub of telephone communication. And it stood to reason that in order to expand, they would have to demolish the building that existed there. The problem, though, was that to demolish the building would be to suspend telephone service. It would be to shut down the switchboards. And Kurt Vonnegut Sr., of all people, was the one to suggest the idea. You know, after looking at the layout, after looking at the plot and the space available and the, the desired expansion he looked at it and he said, what if we simply rotate the building, the existing building, 90 degrees, and we push it 50 feet to the edge of the property line? And then we have enough room on the plot to build this larger facility. But we can do it without interrupting service wow what a what a what an outside the box thinker you know i've heard it said the more restrictions on on a design the more elegant the design well kurt vonnegut senior envisioned lifting the entire building moving it while maintaining a continuity of service, while keeping electricity and sewer and water and heat, gas 
all of it still flowing into the building. And in 1930, over the course of a month, I believe November into December, they picked this building up, lifted it, I want to say only a half an inch, if I remember. You know, I read this stuff this morning, but they lifted it a half an inch off the ground. Cleared out underneath, slid some steel I-beams underneath it, and then rolled it on on 75-foot-long Oregon pine. I want to say maybe it was Douglas fir, actually, but... <clears throat> they shipped in logs specifically to move this building because the building was 100 feet by 135 feet. You needed a pretty long roller underneath there. So, <sighs> Kurt Vonnegut Sr. envisioned that it could be done, and then they made it happen. You know, these, these men moved, moved a significantly large building, a structure, and the people working inside of it never even noticed, except for the fact they had to walk into the building on this, on this walkway that was, it was a curved sidewalk with, with sort of a tunnel. And if you watch this GIF, this this time lapse of the building being rotated you can see what i'm talking about but it's like a a half crescent or i guess a you know quarter crescent um and as the building moved the sidewalk kind of remained accessible right they had to add slack to all the all the utility lines the sewer the the gas the electric they had to they had to Basically, without interrupting telephone service and the building's sort of general functionality, they were able to add enough slack to let the building move to its new place and stay open. It's just an amazing feat, especially for the time. And apparently it's still one of the largest buildings ever to be relocated know how that is qualified I'm not sure I've seen you know some videos of buildings that are clearly larger but you know it's an eight-story building like I said a hundred by a hundred and thirty-five feet so that's you know that's that's not nothing eleven thousand tons eleven thousand tons and it was moved three-eighths of an inch at a time by manually operated jacks. You know, men operating levers, they'd have to pump it. I think I read it was six pumps on each jack to move three-eighths of an inch. And I think it totaled about 15 inches an hour while they were, you know, doing their job. And they had to, you know, stop to, to take a log out from the backside and move it around to the front. These 75-foot-long Douglas fir logs that had to come in from Oregon. 
special for the job because the building had to be supported underneath and, and rolled. And these rollers had to, had to be big enough for a hundred foot wide building. You know, it's just quite an ordeal and nobody else even considered it. I mean, I shouldn't say I wasn't in the room, but the story goes that Kurt Vonnegut Sr. was was the oddball, the outlier, the exception. Everyone else said you got to demolish, you got to suspend operation, you got to build a new building. Kurt said, nah. And it's just, it's funny to think that his son ended up becoming one of the most prolific American authors. This idea of an exceptional person. You know, I think I... I think I need to pause... Because I'm gonna I'm gonna read you one of Kurt Vonnegut's short stories. So I need to pull it up real quick, but it's called Harrison Bergeron. And it's short. You know, it, it should only take me a few minutes, but I think it, it ties in with what we're talking about here. So give me give me just a moment. Okay. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal in every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody, nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of the agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise and keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television, There were tears in Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head, 
His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, says, said Hazel. Huh? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyways. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot. Their faces were masked so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped. But he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all those different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only if I was handicapped or general, you know what I would do? said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday, just chimes, kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe I'd make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who is now in jail, about Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, says Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a, uh, such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on, on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed on the studio floor and were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so as you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag a little while, she said. I don't care if we're not equal to me, or if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag in his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in that in the bottom of that bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. Two years in prison and a $2,000 fine for every ball I take out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take out a few of them when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just, you just sit around. 
If I tried to get, get away with it, said George, then other people would get away with it. And pretty soon we'd be right back in the dark ages with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer, <clears throat> excuse me. If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his hand, in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George, blankly. Society, said Hazel, uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was, since the announcer, like all the announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, Ladies and gentlemen, he finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, Hazel said to the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for, for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was so hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers. For her handicap bags were so big as those, or were as big as those worn by 200 pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was warm, luminous, timeless uh, melody. Excuse me, she said, and she began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete and is under, under handicapped and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture was shown the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever, uh, had ever borne heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for his mental han handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles uh, with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people, but Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. 
and to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at snaggletooth random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn off its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might have, for many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A uh, living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, and huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio door was still in his hands. <clears throat> Hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear me? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot on the studio floor. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, sickened. I am greater I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealing a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dare rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then... A ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the men mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back to their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make your baron, you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false. But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like bat <laughs> batons as as he sang the music as he wanted it played, he slammed them back in their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for, 
for a while, listening gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats to it. They shifted their weight weights to their toes. Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 35 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their marvelous intention to kiss the ceiling, and they kissed it. And then, neutrally, neutraling, what is this? And then, neutraling gravity, with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burnt out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then sat down again. You've been crying, he said to Hazel. Yup, she said. What about, he said. I forget, she said. Something real sad on television. What was it, he said. It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. There was a sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell that one was a doozy. That was Harrison Bergeron, written by Kurt Vonnegut in 1961 okay so what do you think of that story right I mean I think the the point is pretty clear you know that this notion of of taking the idea of equality to a point of making it making it into a system that is inherently against exceptionality against competition against achievement 
you know, to take it to that point is to take it too far. You know, he says it in the very first couple of lines. Let me see here. It says, yeah, it's like the very first line. The year was 2081 and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, but they were equal in every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger, quicker, uh, stronger or quicker than anybody else. You know, it's, it's an extreme version of, of what some people would do. And his protagonist, right? Harrison is an, you know, an equally extreme you know, version of a, of a superhuman and, you know, an exceptional human seven feet tall, carrying 300 pounds of, of, you know, scrap metal around. And that's clearly an exaggeration, but it's such a vivid description. And you have to wonder, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, he was writing at a time not so dissimilar from from the time we're living in like a tumultuous time in America and i imagine that being the son of this this acclaimed and you know accomplished architect young kurt you know <laughs> I wish I had known him as a child. If you ever see interviews with him, it, it kind of seems like he never grew up. But Kurt Vonnegut Jr., right? The author, not the architect. He, he must have wondered, sort of... Uh, I guess I can't put myself in his shoes. I shouldn't try. But this idea of like accomplishment, you know, he clearly found it in a different way through an artistic expression, you know, through writing, through through being an author. So different from being an architect, but at the same time is it? You know, I almost think you can you can classify both professions as as a type of polymath. You know, this concept of being a polymath that I bring up occasionally, I, I take it very seriously because I believe it's what our natural sort of human state is. We're supposed to be jacks of many trades, right? You know, I don't like jack of all trades, master of one. I'm more like jack of many trades and master of a couple, Right? But this is our natural state. We're not supposed to be hyper-specialists, I don't believe. And to be an author is to be an expert in many things. You know, to be an architect, you have to be 
you have to be artistic, but you also have to have, you know, good, good mathematics, geometry, algebra, you know, physics. You have to know material sciences. You have to know sort of construction, you know, the, the trades. You have to understand all kinds of issues with, with, I, you know, you get it. You get it. You have to know a lot of things. You have to know a little bit about a, about a lot. You have to know a, a lot about a few. And I, I wonder what, what Kurt Vonnegut Sr. thought about his rebellious, you know, author of a son. I, I can't say, but... <laughs> You gotta wonder. But it brings it brings me back to this idea of sort of there there's just no way around the fact that there are people who will do exceptional things and there are others who will not. You know, of course we can all be in a an exceptional person in our own way. But I think we need more people to strive towards being exceptional in a way that affects, affects the future, you know, for good. And I know I'm speaking kind of hypothetically and idealistically, but I think we need to strive to be exceptional for more than just our own comfort and our own satisfaction, but we need to give, we need to channel our energy into these, into these exponentially beneficial endeavors. You know, Kurt Vonnegut Sr. kept the telephones working. In a nutshell, that was his contribution by suggesting the moving of the building instead of the demolition. You know, and that's just a small thing, but who knows what the ramifications were. And just just the proving of it being possible. And then his son, who maybe saw that happening in 1930. And maybe thought to himself, well, anything is possible. My dad moved a building and he started writing and the implications of Kurt Vonnegut's literature is, you know, uncalculable. So why not try, right? You know, that's why I started this podcast. That's why I started my business. You know, the problem that you seek to solve, whatever it is, I bet you the solution is embarrassingly simple. That's Bill Mollison's quote. You know, to me, what's the problem? Well, there's a lot of problems. But to me, the main problems are a lack of a lack of community, a lack of connection with nature, and Poor diet. So what's my solution? Raise bed vegetable gardens. 
and a podcast. You know, it's pretty fucking simple, but getting it done ain't, ain't easy. You know, I've got to haul ass. I've got to kick ass. And I could be doing more than I am now. I know it. A lot of energy gets wasted. But I'm getting more efficient. You know, compared to four years ago, I am, I'm slaying it. You know, it used to take me 12 hours to do what I can get done in four. That's because I'm practicing and I'm, and I'm focused. So I don't know what problem you're on this, on this planet to solve. Maybe it's the same problems I'm trying to solve, but maybe you have another solution. Maybe yours is different, but equally simple. Hell, maybe, maybe it's similar. You know, I'm not, I'm not keeping this to myself. Start building gardens. Start building a garden. That's a start. I mean, honestly, y'all think of one thing that you can do that's more practical. That's more pragmatic. That's more prepper focused. That's going to actually do something for you in the real world, in the near term. You know, $100 worth of seeds and compost can turn into $1,000 worth of food easily. Easily. So, I tell you what, you know, I, I was listening to David Allen Coe all day. Some good old country. And his song, Little Time Off for Bad Behavior. I don't know if you're familiar. It's a good track, but it was ringing in my head today. You know, I was busting ass. It's a good, like, working song. And I'm looking forward to going to a wedding this weekend. Got a nice gal that's going to be my date. You know, seeing a buddy get married that I grew up with. Known since I was just a tyke. And uh, looking forward to that day. And so, so this song, you know, it's like a work song, but a party song at the same time. I need a little time off for bad behavior. The devil in me has been asleep too long. And he says, uh, I'm going to try to get this right. <clears throat> I'll be up and gone at the crack of dawn. <sighs> Shit. Okay, I pulled it up. Because I just, I love this verse. Says, I'll be up at dawn, or I'll be up and gone at the crack of dawn. I've been working like a regular dog to keep my woman and the lights and the water and the phone turned on. What a line! One more time, one more time. I'll be up and gone at the crack of dawn. I've been working like
like a regular dog to keep my woman and the lights and the water and the phone turned on. It's clever. It's good. And it's just like Kurt Vonnegut Sr. Up at dawn at the up and gone at the crack of dawn, working like a regular dog, keeping the phones and the lights turned on. And his woman too, I bet, you know, Kurt Kurt Jr. didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just realizing how much better life is if you can if you can achieve this level of like exceptional output. You know, I think Kurt Vonnegut Jr. seemed like to enjoy how much he had contributed. And he, he had relationships with people that that were fans of his and like he appreciated that they appreciated him. And he was like he was humble about his gratitude towards his fans in a way that you don't see very much with like modern celebrities but I think it's because at least I hope he he kind of like felt that he did good you know he lived long enough to sort of see the impact of his books that's beautiful it's beautiful you know it's like I you know his dad I hope was able to walk around the city of Indianapolis and other places you know he had he had a hand in buildings in cities all across the Midwest. You know, he was a prolific architect, just like his son was a prolific author. And why not strive for that? Now, sometimes I do fear about coming up short, right? Like, what if I don't achieve what I'm setting out to achieve? Well, I'm not I'm not trying to have a million people listening to me, you know, by doing this podcast, I'm I'm not sure what would satisfy me except I think what I'm striving for is to build some amount of community here. And if I don't plant a garden in every backyard, you know, that's not going to be a disappointment. I'm satisfied planting one. You know, a hundred would be great. A thousand would be better. But like, I think, I think I'm learning, you know, all you, all you do is address the problem in front of you. You know, what's the next step? You know, Kurt Vonnegut senior was able to look at that building and look at that plot and think about, well, if we do this and this and that, we can make it work. But it starts with one thing at a time. And I'm just going to wrap it up by saying that I've got, well, I had $2,000 worth of starts to plant. I got rid of about $200 worth today. Let's see if we can do a few more tomorrow. Let's see if we can build a little bit more of this greenhouse tomorrow. Let's keep addressing the problems. And before you know it, 
by the end of next week, after doing a little bit here, a little bit there, one step at a time, I will have planted 20 different gardens and built a greenhouse. And that's no small thing. You know, I can be proud of that. I can be satisfied with that for the time being. And hell, might take a little time off for bad behavior. Just like David Allen Coe recommends. So with that, I'm signing off. And uh, yeah, I wish you all a good week. And uh, be exceptional, you know. This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again. Come back again.